Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. The heat is on in Brussels this week, and we are working hard not to melt in this 35 degrees Celsius, 100 degree Fahrenheit set of temperatures. I speak for most of Brussels when I say this city needs to get its air conditioning act together. It's full of office buildings with completely ineffective central cooling systems and people who religiously believe that air conditioning systems can make you sick, when in reality it's unclean and poorly maintained aircon, not the science itself that can cause problems. Either way, it adds up to a sweaty, unproductive mess. And while of course air conditioning should be run on clean energy, it makes no sense to not have it at all in this world that is increasingly impacted by rising and volatile temperatures. Back to politics, we discuss a triumphant 24 hours for Europe on the podcast panel. Europe's rival to the GPS satellite system is now fully operational, and Jean-Claude Juncker had his peace in our time moment in the White House Rose Garden. That's where he and President Donald Trump said they struck a deal on trade. Well, really, it's a plan to do a deal, which is pretty similar to the previous plan to do a deal dating back to 2013, but I guess that's just details, and who needs them in 2018? In our main interview, we talk about the Balkans and whether and when those countries should join the European Union, with the European Commissioner in charge of the process, Johannes Hahn. But first, a little background on the issues. Before we speak to Commissioner Johannes Hahn, I wanted to bring in Andrew Gray, who has reported from the Balkans in the aftermath of those wars in the 1990s and who is a news editor here at Politico. Welcome, Andrew. Hi there. I think one of the important pieces of context before we hear from Commissioner Hahn is uh, just how difficult the history of the Balkans is. It's not so long ago, it's 20 to 25 years now, that we were really talking about genocide on Europe's doorstep. But by the same token, 25 years after World War II, Western Europe had gone a lot further in reaching a consensus about how that history needed to be dealt with. So what that means is that Commissioner Hahn has a very tough job on his hands, and I wanted to get your view, Andrew, on on where we're at in dealing with that history in the Balkans. Yeah, well, I think that one of the things that comes out here, Ryan, is the difference between peace and absence of war. We've certainly had an absence of war in the Balkans since the early 2000s, apart from a conflict in Macedonia that looked like it could turn into a full-blown war but didn't, thanks in part to Western intervention. But still, in a sense, what's lacking in the region is a common understanding of those wars, what happened, who was responsible. They're just very, very different narratives. There are whole new generations growing up with very different narratives of what went on in those wars. And that does mean that these efforts to bring people together, they're based very much on pragmatism at the moment. The argument that we hear, I think, in the interview with uh, Commissioner Han is about economic cooperation, about greater economic integration. And it's just worth remembering that most of these countries that we're talking about were part of a single market. They were part of a single country, Yugoslavia. That did not stop those countries going to war. So in a sense, there's a limit to what obviously the European Union can do to impose that from outside. But even though those wars, I mean, to some of our listeners, they'll be like ancient history. And I always have to remember that because they seem very fresh to me. But they are still very present in the minds of people in the region. That's not to say they're dominated by them. It's not to say people are warlike or particularly nationalistic. But it is to say that that's the kind of 
baseline that people are building on and the trouble is it's not a common baseline and people have different baselines. Well exactly you can build as many single markets as you want but if you still have significant sections of the population who valorize idolize war criminals people who really were involved in nasty stuff then you know there's a limit to what you can achieve and that that does make Commissioner Hahn's job very difficult because in to some extent the countries of that region want EU membership but haven't gone through some of the steps that other countries went through in order to be ready for EU membership. Right, and, and we'll hear him talk, and also they've now published a strategy earlier this year, a new strategy for the region, which talks about meeting very high standards, actually, in terms of commitment to EU values. And I think, as I think we hear in the interview, that's partly learning from the past, because to be honest, there are several countries in the EU, or governments, let's be clearer, who would not meet the standards that are now being required of Western Balkan countries. And when we think about where they are at the moment, I think that makes clear how tough the suggested timeline is of having at least a couple of these countries ready to join in 2025. And and we hear about that in the interview as well. Thanks, Andrew. Let's get on to that interview now with Commissioner Johannes Hahn. I interviewed Johannes Hahn in his office as he was flying out the door for a summer holiday in Scotland. Funnily enough, that's where Donald Trump often heads in summer. And like Trump, Hahn also takes meetings with Coca-Cola served at the table. But that's where the similarities end. Joining us now on EU Confidential is the Commissioner from Austria. So that's a privilege because it's the Austrian presidency of the EU at the moment. And also the Commissioner for Enlargement and Dealing with Europe's Neighbourhood, Johannes Hahn. So welcome to the podcast. Welcome, and it's a good opportunity after an exciting year, or half year, to talk to you about achievements in particular in the Western Balkans. The Austrians have very particular views on how to deal with the Balkans, which is their neighborhood. They've had strong views on migration, and you've been the commissioner since Sebastian Kurz was 23, I think. Tell us, how are you approaching this presidency, which is, you know, once in a generation opportunity for each country in the EU? Well, I think the Austrians are well prepared. It's their third presidency. They have experiences. But I'm very confident that this will be a very successful presidency. And it's, by the way, important because it's the last presidency, full, quasi full presidency, before the next European elections. And a lot of legal work is still to be done. I was speaking to people at the parliament last week and they were saying there's 330 files still to be dealt with down at the parliament. But maybe that takes us on to your portfolio of enlargement as well, because it's also the last full presidency before the UK is to leave the EU. But your job is to manage whether the EU should grow and should new countries join. Is it a bit strange dealing with those two tensions that you are looking at people who want to join the EU while actually it will shrink in the beginning of 2019? I'm also the Commissioner for Neighbourhood and unfortunately at the end of my mandate I'm also in charge of dealing with the UK as a neighbouring country. So in that respect there is an unexpected, not unexpected, an unwishful extension of my portfolio. Uh, But I think we have to separate the two issues and it's not even the other side of the coin. It's something totally different. The one have unfortunately decided uh, to leave. Probably now they regret it, and uh, in the Western Balkans there are many good reasons why we are pursuing this idea of having them in. 
also from our point of view as Europeans, because I'm always saying it's about either we export stability or we import instability. And this is why it's in our own interest as Europeans to have them in a medium and long perspective within the European family. There are millions of people out there who say, why should the EU prioritise bringing new people in, often they're poorer countries, rather than getting more unity and coherence within the remaining 27 EU countries? So is that the extent of your argument there, or do you take specific arguments into specific countries to say, well, we have to keep Turkey close, otherwise we've got problems on migration. We have to bring the Western Balkans in, otherwise they may end up back at war. If some people like President Macron and others uh, think, and I, I agree with them, that we have to work on sort of say, improving, let's say, our performance as a union, this is something we have to do, we have to address. It's not something you can do within one year, two years. It, it takes time. The same is uh, that it takes time to so to say, pursue the enlargement process. So my point is maybe a little bit different from President Macron. Maybe we can convince him that both has to be done in parallel. Now, we know that the process for joining the EU is a long one. No one's going to be joining in the next couple of years. But does it worry you that even with that timeline, there's still a little bit of a shaky foundation there in the Balkans in particular? There's still no agreed sense of what all of those wars meant. And the EU is building on top of a rather shaky foundation because there isn't that consensus there about what that whole period of history meant. If it comes to the Western Balkans, it's exactly our intention to stabilize the region, to make it less vulnerable to developments from inside, from outside. And this can only be done if we address all, of course, their deficiencies. So economic development is crucial. Economic development will also, so say, trigger more rule of law or better rule of law developments because it would be an illusion that the guys in the region are improving the rule of law conditions without any external pressure. Yeah. So if it's only about ticking boxes that they have adopted one or the other law, they could already be members. Uh, but it's about proving that all the so to say, legal activities and initiatives are really implemented. I applied sustainable track record if it comes, for instance, about the fight against corruption, then we will see are there really trials, are there really rulings, and not only for small fishes, but also big fishes. In that sense, it could make a lot of sense to take more time to develop that membership perspective. You know, we might argue that because the EU moved so quickly on Romania and Bulgaria, it brought some problems into the tent. You also see the situation now with rule of law in Hungary and Poland, where even if you think you've had an impact on a society and culture, if you do it too quickly, sometimes you've papered over the issue rather than addressed the issue fully. You are right. We have learned our lessons from previous accession rounds. And this is why now we are, so to say, looking really in the sustainable development before joining the union so already the accession negotiations for the process with Croatia lasted uh, eight years I am sure that the new ones will not be faster and is there capacity or do you see evidence of the Western Balkan countries 
self-organizing before they get into formal membership talks or during those membership talks. And the example I'd give there is that they could organize as a single market, in a sense, demonstrating as a small unit what they would have to demonstrate as part of the wider European family. They agreed in principle on my initiative on what we call a regional economic area, where we try to reduce or abandon certain informal, formal barriers in order to push the regional economic cooperation. And this has already shown some effects. So in 2017, for the first time after 10 years or maybe ever, we have seen an increase of trade activities between the six countries. Whereas if you take the trade volume between the six countries and Europe, this has been doubled in the last 10 years to now 46 billion a year. So if the trade between Europe and the six could have been doubled, why not between the six? And this is exactly what we tried to address and we see first positive results and it's for instance about abandoning border controls or at least um, ease them etc. For instance I was uh, handing over emergency cars in um, Podgorica one and a half year ago. These cars were built at the European part of Turkey but it took six or seven days to drive them from the European part of Turkey to Montenegro. And most of the time they were simply um, standing at borders for controls. And this is ridiculous. And so there are many other examples where rather simple measures, we can really have an improvement in economic activities. Now, it's not specifically a race between different countries to join the EU, but to some extent, it is, and most people would say that Serbia and Montenegro are the most advanced in the discussions with the EU. And last year you said something like 2025 is a, you know the best possible scenario. They could be members then. Do you stand by that? Do you think that's still a realistic timeline? The whole process is a kind of regatta and not a convoy. I mean, ideally, it would be great if all the six could join at the same time, but this is, uh, from today's point of view, rather unlikely. And, of course, uh, it should be merit-based. It would be unfair if the best-performing one has to wait till the least-performing one is catching up. So we'll see who uh, who will be the first. But this uh, famous 2025 is an indicative date. It means... It could be possible, also it's rather ambitious, I have to say, because uh, joining in 2025 means to conclude negotiations in 2023, which means almost tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's possible, but it's very ambitious. But on the other hand, it should indicate how serious we are about this whole process. And in that respect, it has worked out. Now, there's also been some news recently around Albania and Macedonia. They seem to be making progress. Uh, For those who don't follow that every day on the Commission press release system, can you tell us a little bit about the steps that they've taken forward? Yeah, um, I have still to say the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Yes, apologies, possibly North Macedonia. The problems um, raised uh, 27, 28 years ago when uh, this uh, country became independent, gave its name, and this was challenged by the Greeks. And there were also um, problems with uh, Bulgaria, 
and the new government after years of political crisis where we really managed to and facilitated that this country is moving back to democratic standards. The new government uh, was brave um, and uh, dynamic enough to settle the bilateral conflict with Bulgaria already last year. And after 27 years of negotiations uh, facilitated by the UN, they agreed with Greece about uh, a solution and now this has to be implemented. We support this uh, process, but uh, this was the reason why all the accession aspirations were on hold. So uh, the country received, I think, nine times recommendation by the European Commission that negotiations should be started, which was not possible due to the veto of some member states. This has now been removed and I'm very confident that indeed next year we can start negotiations. The aim is really to get uh, a green light by our member states mid of next year as it was said and stipulated in our council conclusions that negotiations should start next year and hopefully first chapters can be opened by the end of next year. I guess in a way it's also a lesson in dialogue where the EU is sometimes criticized as not having the hard power of some of the other major powers in the world. But is this Macedonia process for you proof that if you just keep trying, if you just keep talking, eventually there can be a breakthrough? I think recently in a discussion uh, in, in London, the... Is this the famous summit that Boris Johnson didn't turn up to? Uh, it was at the margin. It was a conference in Chatham House and I was together there with the foreign minister from Skopje and I think he said, if I quote him right, the Europeans have forgotten how cold it is outside. And this is exactly, I think in one sentence, what describes, so to say, desire of non-members to join the union. And I think people have the right uh, to, to become members. I'm always saying everything has started in 89 with the fall of the Iron Curtain. The huge enlargement in 2004 was, so to say, a first great consequence. And I would say all this is only concluded if once the six countries are members of the Union. Now, we don't want anyone to feel left out there, so maybe we should touch a little on Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina. We might say that they're the countries that could be most susceptible to other problems like radical Islamism. What do you think the EU can do to make sure that none of the six are left behind? Well, all of us have to be very determined. I'm always saying you have to be passionate, but also in a way patient to achieve our common goals. And it can only be done if you are rather pragmatic and if you apply, so to say, a tailor-made approach. Yeah. There is no one-size-fits-all. They have different uh, problems. For instance, um, Kosovo, I mean, beside the need to have an agreement with Serbia, I mean, today, the income structure of the state still, I think one-third of the income is based on tariffs, on duties. This is not sustainable if they are once member in the single market but you cannot change from one day to the other such an income structure. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, of course, 
we have to change, so to say, in a way, the societal fabric. And by that, do we mean the tripartite structure in their government, or you mean something else that needs to change? Yeah, of course, it's exactly this. And, well, we have to see how this can be done. There are not yet uh, solutions on the table, but they are fully aware they have to find solutions. Probably we have to help them. Russia hasn't been afraid to rekindle or remember some of its old alliances in the region. I was reading about China funding some very expensive highway infrastructure in Montenegro recently. You've got the the remnants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. As an, as an Austrian, lots of Austrians feel like the neighborhood is their backyard as well. How do you feel about that outside influence? I mean, I, I don't imagine that Russia is about to invade, but when you have people like President Trump say, well, maybe we won't be there for Montenegro if it were to be invaded, I guess it must be some cause of concern that you have all of these other players in the mix. Uh, Europe should and has to be much more self-confident looking simply into the figures and i mean 75 percent of the trade is with the european union 75 percent of foreign uh, direct investments in the region is by european companies investors etc so it's it's obvious who is uh, so to say the player if I, I would be nervous, less nervous about Russia. It's more about China, I have to say. But they also try to import, so to say, their way of life. And this means, so to say, a combination of capitalism and political dictatorship. We have to be aware about this. We have to be alerted about this. And this is why I'm discussing this also with the Chinese also against the backdrop that uh, it's about an equal level playing field. They have all opportunities in Europe, but European companies don't have the same opportunities in China. So we should not forget that there is a kind of reciprocity. So this goes far beyond uh, the Western Balkans, but there it materializes there and there. But we should be clear about this. And then, of course, there is Turkey. I'm not against any kind of uh, competition, provided that this is, so to say, based on the same understanding, rules, etc. And, of course, as it is in Europe, uh, European rules. I guess I'm just thinking out loud now, uh, but going back to that China point, where you can, as a small country, be very easily locked into terms of 20, 30 years of heavy debt financing, which is much longer than the membership perspective of joining the EU, in fact. And so if some of those smaller countries aren't careful, you can you can find yourself in a very precarious situation, or the EU can find itself with a Trojan horse coming into the summit room at the European Council. This is exactly the case with this famous highway in Montenegro. And also this is a kind of uh, pattern or, let's say, business model by the Chinese to offer attractive or more or less attractive loans and if you cannot uh, serve them it's turned into capital. Hmm? So I think we should be aware about the strategic concept by China and react in an adequate manner. I think this will be one of the great challenges of Europe. The Union has to become more effective also in terms of its foreign policy. And I think uh, this is why we are discussing, so to say, to move, at least in some areas, 
from unanimous decision to majority or qualified majority decisions. Juncker was recently saying Europe should gain the ability to be a global political factor and actor. But this can only be achieved if our means and tools allow us to act and not only to react. But if I need always the agreement of 27 or 28, then you don't need to be a political scientist. That This is not contributing to uh, a dynamic going forward. And therefore the Commission will come forward in autumn with the proposal of hopefully more than 40 areas where we believe we can move from to the unanimous decision to majority decision in order to improve simply our performance and to make us fit for a global competition. Well, Commissioner Hahn, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much for having the opportunity to explain a little bit more the ideas why we are engaged in enlargement. That was Johannes Hahn, European Commissioner for Enlargement Negotiations and Neighbourhood Policy. And now it's time for the podcast panel. Welcome back, Alva. Hi, Ryan. How was your bachelor party? I am feeling a little bit rough. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. We can see that. Thank you. That is really, really special. We also got some very special feedback during my bachelor weekend about the audio quality of the panel. So we're working very hard to fix that this week. Message for you, Scott. If I break my back leaning into this microphone, we'll be sending you the medical bills. But let's move on to the topics of the week. I think we cannot escape Donald Trump and Jean-Claude Juncker, the new BFFs of the White House Rose Garden West Wing, everywhere else they hung out, kissed. There were some good smooches there, wasn't there? Yeah, and then there was the end of their kind of press conference and Donald went to do his usual handshake and Juncker just completely like turned away. I think after Trump finishes in the White House, who knows when that will be, like yeah, two or six years, we need to put a reel of all of the missed handshakes, the long handshakes, all the handshakes, just to see that because the body language is incredibly important in the Trump era, I think. I guess it was a press conference in that the press gathered, but Trump didn't really answer any questions, so I might seek a new label for that event. Lena, what's your take on the Back to the Future version of the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership that we seem to have had announced to us on Wednesday evening? I believe they have done it very smartly. Everyone is uh, cheering and everyone is tweeting and congratulating. But it is absolutely buying time, tactics of negotiations. What are we negotiating exactly? What did we agree on? What if one day one of the tweets of President Trump upsets the Europeans and someone pulls out from the table? So it's an empty thing. I don't think we have even went back to 2013 because at least you had some guidelines and some mandate for the negotiations. And this is a, a very technical procedure here in, uh, within the institutions. And there was nothing agreed upon or signed. So I can't call it a deal. It's The EU did give something that was interesting to Trump. They promised to buy more liquefied natural gas from the US, which I think is something they wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And they promised to buy more soybeans. And honestly, who knows what that means, because I don't think there's some massive new unmet soybean demand in Europe, <laughs> although maybe we are moving to a more vegan culture. Well, that's what he could give, right? So those are the things that he was empowered to do. I think it was a bit of a band-aid, but we definitely see that Trump, 
a lot more than other officials, loves to meet people and loves a bit of publicity around it. So in some ways, I think it was a way to go back to his detractors at home who are saying, you're not holding your allies close enough and why are you palling up so much to Putin? And then this kind of closer embrace of the EU is something to say back to them. Uh, so I think it's actually linked a lot to what's happening to him and within the Republican Party. Like people are saying, hey, why are you offending all of our allies? All the, uh, you know. So this is a way of doing that, I think. And then, yeah, it gives Juncker a little bit of a thumbs up here in Brussels because people are very aware of how difficult Trump is to deal with. Juncker isn't necessarily known for charisma, but he managed... Really? Oh, I think he's quite charismatic. I mean, I've made a lot of criticisms of the man in the past, but sort of charming, friendly, old-school yeah. politician. I would always have said he was that. And he's a people's person. He is uh, warm. You can reach him. Even if he doesn't remember your name, he would pretend that he knows you or he has yeah. just uh, met you. Yeah, I think he uh, really is a deal-maker that they have in common. Just my problem is to call it a deal or an agreement because <laughs> yeah. you really need to sign something and you really need to be documenting something with a timeline, with a clear mandate and with a clear delivery until this day. This is an ongoing, open-ended negotiations. Perfect. Yeah, the communication lines are open. And I think that's probably the most important thing that, that came out of it, even if they haven't got very many tick boxes and agreements. But yeah. Well, another open-ended question involving the Trump world is Stephen Bannon, the one of the nastier members of that whole scene. He has decided that he's landing in Europe and he's set up the movement. There's no other movement, folks, you've been told. And that movement is here to destroy Brussels from within. So he is going to allegedly bring together many of the nationalist, the Eurosceptic and the far right parties of Europe and he's going to try and crush the EU elite and their cozy left-wing cosmopolitan liberal consensus via a foundation in Brussels. Are you buying it? I think we're giving him too much credit. If he says he's gonna do that and he's gonna destroy Brussels and do all the, uh, the nasty stuff he, he wants to do, it doesn't mean that he will do it. His credibility is almost zero among the mature educated people that they understand, the Europeans, they are not going to be bluffed by him. And, and, and you would include in that the sort of supporters of Alternative for Deutschland, the Marine Le Pens, the Victor Orban people. I mean, there's clearly millions of people that vote for those sort of parties. Certainly. And these people and these parties historically have been there in Europe and they will always stay. Now, are the Europeans going to give an American the ropes of their future? I don't think so. I don't think he uh, even understands European politics. He will say what some people like to say here, but he will not win. There's a lot of ideology here behind it. And then the funding. Where is he going to get the funding from? We're talking about loads and loads and loads of money. Well, I, I can guess he's going to get it from rich individuals and very possibly, not this year, but next year, he'd be eligible probably to get some EU money. The EU has been very good at funding its own enemies and helping to bring itself down, including by being UKIP's biggest funder for many years. 
Yeah, I was about to say that. I think the European Union will probably be like, great, look at us, we're supporting civil society, here's loads of money, Steve Bannon. I think also the same thing that has been said a lot since this news came out, his star is falling. He was kicked out of the Trump administration, he was kicked out of Breitbart, and now he seems to have some idea of getting back in the news, back in power through Europe. But I think one of the things, and I hope we capture it in this podcast, is that the European Union and how it works is very unique. You need to have a very good understanding of the history of the European Union, the powers at play, and I don't necessarily know whether or not he has that. Maybe he is connecting to the Eurosceptic movement, but they also have a very simplistic understanding of the EU. So I don't necessarily know whether or not this will be a success because it needs to play to certain strengths. His his has always been about migration and railing against political correctness. However, in Europe, the way that we see race is very different to the way that the people in the US see race, and it's not necessarily so black and white. So yeah, I wonder whether or not this will be what he thinks it's going to be, and whether or not he'll get support, because even within those factions, there is a lot of differentiation. For example, the way that Italy views migration and the way that Hungary views migration is very different. They want fundamentally different things. Italy wants support, whereas Hungary wants everybody to be guarding its own borders. So I think he'll have a a harder time. But then again, I think it is also a sign of the times, and we shouldn't dismiss it, because people coming behind Eurosceptics and and more conservative and alt-right forces, that is just can't be a good thing. And it is a sign of something very bad. Um, I would agree on the basis that anyone who was able to take over the White House is someone that you should be very wary of. But you also look at the sort of people that he's aligned with. And they're the sort of people who've been rejected time and time again in Europe. They're not even the main far-right parties in their own countries. They're fractions of extreme parties. And the sort of people that he'd want to be aligning with if he was going to replicate what he did in 2016 in America, they're not going to touch him with a barge pole. Viktor Orban isn't going to leave the EPP, let alone sign up to Steve Bannon's movement. So I do think there's a little bit of people buying into the most dramatic narrative because it's worth discussing, but you know, maybe getting a little bit too excited. And what you said is extremely important, Ryan, is to observe the narrative that they will be using. With the consciousness and the awareness now around Europe about all what he did and what Le Pen is doing and all the extreme right are trying to do to Europe, we need to have an alternative conversation, alternative argument on a grassroots level. These people, when they campaign and when they go, they're not going on very sophisticated methods. We need to watch the narrative and watch the tools of communication they are using and where they are going. If we start on a grassroots level and work from that, I think they will not have a space to flourish and have more on-the-ground supporters. You take us to a perfect point where I think we're heading in this 2019 European election to the first real European elections Mm -hmm. we've ever had, where we're finally going to have a real political argument about whether the EU is worth having or not in simpler terms so that people can understand it rather than really process-driven terms and very centrist technical discussions like we might have had in the past. And you're right, there are other movements like Volt Europa and others who are doing a left-wing version, I would say, or at least a left liberal version Mm -hmm. of Bannon. And so I think people are occupying different parts of that spectrum and will enable that debate to happen. But I think it might be time to finish on a positive note because there are some good things happening in Europe 
And I think we all agreed that the final satellites from the Galileo satellite system, the four of them were successfully launched this week. There are now 26 in the air. That means a fully functional European alternative to the GPS system. And in the words of the EU, that means strategic autonomy. And so the background there is that the US military obviously developed an amazing system with GPS. We have it on all of our smartphones. But of course, if things go wrong in the world and the US military were to turn off that system to people who aren't its allies, to its enemies and so on, then that would leave continents like Europe without those sort of systems until today. Yeah, I think it's great. There is no denying that Europe has filled a space in You're space. Full of the puns. Yeah. This week, <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I yeah, I had a coffee this morning, so I, I'm ready. But I think we really underestimate the role that space will play in the future, particularly around the internet, GPS, things like that. And Galileo, it was very expensive, but Galileo goes to show that if you put in the hours and you have a vision, they have now created the most precise GPS system in the world. And it can be used for a myriad of different things. And I think this is really emblematic of some of the things that Europe can do together when they see a common cause, when they see a common space that needs to be filled. Yeah, and I just think it's something that we definitely should celebrate. And it's something that everyday people don't necessarily know that there are these things flying around in the sky that we've all paid for as Europeans, but actually help us and will help our economies. And the Brits paid for them too. Yeah. That yeah. was a very pointed subtext in a lot of the messaging. One of the, let's say, the last things that the UK uh, worked with, with the EU, it's a beautiful legacy. But what I liked is the time of announcing it. It was just the same day of the Trump and Juncker summit. So it's really beautiful just to set, look, Europe as well is doing their own system and we're, we're moving ahead as a European Union. It's a 15 years project, but we accomplished it together. It's just timely. It shows unity, uh, not only to the Europeans, but to the world uh, on a day, a very special day like yesterday on the summit. And Commissioner Bienkowska, she said, no country in Europe could have done this alone. Like it was very clear. She was yeah. saying, talk all you want, London. Yeah. You are not going to be able to do this uh, quickly or easily if you attempt it on yeah. your own. Well, Alva, Lena, thank you so much for coming in on this very hot Brussels morning. Uh, it was a pleasure, as always. And remember, to everyone listening, if you want to join our community, just go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the EU confidential box. And wherever you found this podcast, if you take a moment to rate, review or subscribe, all the hassle goes away and the podcast will come to you. Podcasting is a team effort. So thanks so much to Andrew Gray, Nicole Fallett and Wei Dong Lin.